If this is your first time listening to Presumed Guilty, stop, go back, and start with episode one. Everything will make a lot more sense. Last time on Presumed Guilty. Some said he ruled with an iron hand and called him King Richard. He rebuffed his critics, saying his tough convictions made up for any ferocity. And the six convictions he got in the Helen Wilson murder case were the biggest of his career. Decades later, DNA testing would make them even bigger. Aside from the type B blood possibly matching one defendant, the case had almost no physical evidence to put the suspects in the victim's apartment. Richard would need some of these so-called idiots to be witnesses to turn on each other. He had a sledgehammer to collect those testimonies. The threat of the death penalty. Of the six defendants in Helen's murder, Joe seems the least likely to fold. He said he believed his innocence would emerge, and he put his faith into the system. The state had four potential witnesses against Joseph White, and he called them all liars. All he had was his hope that a jury would agree. The jury began their deliberations at 11.40 a.m. on Thursday, November 9th. They came back four hours later. Guilty. For Bert Searcy, Richard Smith, and much of Nebraska, it was case closed. But Joseph White would fight to keep it open. From the Lincoln Journal Star and their award-winning reporting project, this is Presumed Guilty. I'm Elizabeth Rembert, and I'm telling the story of how six innocent people served a combined 70 years of jail time for the rape and murder of Helen Wilson. In episode three, we saw how the threat of death turned four of the six defendants against each other. Their testimonies led to a life sentence for Joseph White, but he vowed to continue fighting for his innocence. In this episode, we'll see how his persistence would set him free, but bind Beatrice and Gage County into legal fights and a $28.1 million payout for the injustice. We'll talk through the evidence that cleared the Beatrice Six and identified Helen Wilson's true rapist and murderer, and we'll hear how some people in Beatrice still believe, even through the DNA testing, that the Six did it. But back to 1989. At the end of the last episode, the Beatrice Six had received their sentences for the murder and rape of the 68-year-old widow. Kathy Gonzalez, Deborah Sheldon, and James Dean had reduced their punishments from the possibility of death to just 10 years, and Joanne Taylor's plea got her 40 years. Thomas Winslow received 50, and Joseph White would be jailed for life. At his sentencing, Joseph vowed to spend his prison time fighting his conviction. He said this, quote, I am not guilty of this crime. I have never been guilty of this crime, and even if the sentencing is getting out due to parole, then I will take that opportunity to prove my innocence. As the Beatrice Six received their convictions and Joe promised to keep fighting, Beatrice celebrated. The sheriff promoted Bert Searcy to lieutenant and put him in charge of investigations and road troops. 
Helen Wilson's family considered him a hero, and to honor him, they donated $3,000 to the sheriff's office for new firearms. Groups throughout Beatrice recognized Bert for a job well done. The Lincoln Journal Star published a Sunday profile with the headline, Investigator's Tenacity Key to Solving Beatrice Murder. But a semen sample, recovered from Helen's apartment and stored in the police department's basement for 20 years, would prove that he didn't. Before his conviction, Joe White thought one thing could prove him innocent of the 1985 rape and murder of Helen Wilson. He stood before the judge in January 1990 to ask for DNA tests. He knew they would show he wasn't in the Beatrice Widow's apartment. But DNA testing was still new to the courts in 1990. Joe hoped the results could be used to exclude him as a suspect. But Gage County attorney Richard Smith held that he had the gold standard to prove Joe's guilt. The jury verdict. After all, the criminal justice system is built on the righteousness of 12 people who hear evidence and weigh it to deliver a just decision. Richard had that on his side as he argued that the FBI wouldn't use the new DNA technology on evidence obtained before 1988. He said whatever biological samples were collected from Wilson's apartment in 1985 had surely degraded beyond use by the passage of time. So Judge William Riss denied Joe's request and sent him to the Nebraska State Penitentiary. There, his nickname Lobo disappeared. His fellow inmates called him Alabama, or Bama, or Al. But even in prison, he kept working to prove his innocence. He threw himself into prison jobs. His first job as a janitor earned him just $1.21 a day. Then he moved to the wood shop, where he earned 38 cents an hour. After seven years, he'd earned enough money to hire an attorney. The first lawyer took the case nowhere. The second, fresh out of law school, did a lot of work, but it never culminated in an appeal. Then, in 2001, the Nebraska DNA Testing Act took effect. This new law, pioneered by Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers, allowed people convicted of felonies to file motions for DNA tests if the technology was unavailable at the time of their convictions. Joe began working with an attorney to obtain that DNA testing. The lawyer interviewed some of Joe's co-defendants and realized Thomas Winslow could also be redeemed by DNA tests. So in October 2005, Joe and Tom filed motions for crime scene evidence testing. Their lawyers obtained court orders to protect the material so that they didn't suddenly vanish from the police station's basement, where they had been secured for 20 years in the evidence vault. Richard Smith fought against the motions, and he said Tom had forfeited the right to challenge his convictions because he'd pleaded guilty. On August 28, 2006, a district judge denied both requests. The judge said a favorable result for Tom or Joe would only suggest that one of the men didn't rape Helen. They still could have participated in the crime in other ways, according to the judge. Joe and Tom and their attorneys appealed to the Nebraska Supreme Court. On November 2, 2007, more than 22 years after Helen Wilson was murdered, the state's highest court ruled in their favor. The justices decided DNA testing might exclude both Joe and Tom as sources of the semen. Such a result would have caused jurors at Joe's trial to seriously doubt the testimonies from Joanne Taylor, James Dean, and Deb Sheldon. 
run the DNA tests, the Supreme Court said. Nearly 18 years after his arrest, Joseph White had won a significant court ruling. In 2008, the Human DNA Identification Laboratory at the University of Nebraska Medical Center tested the blood and semen samples recovered from the apartment and saved in the Beatrice Police Department. Two cuttings from Helen Wilson's nightgown. Two slides and a cutting from the carpet. A slide of fluid taken from inside the victim. They also tested blood from Joe, Tom, and Helen. The tests excluded Joe and Tom. On August 1st, their lawyers announced what they called the first DNA exoneration in Nebraska. Joe and Tom were still in prison, even as DNA testing proved they were not in Helen's apartment that night. Their attorneys filed motions to vacate their convictions, but nothing moves quickly in the legal system. Joanne was also still in prison. Deb, James, and Kathy had been released after serving five of their ten years. Randy Ritnour now controlled the rest of the case. He had defeated Richard Smith for Gage County Attorney in 2006. He sought help from Nebraska Attorney General John Bruning, who assigned two state attorneys to the case. The team thought it was setting out to reconvict the Beatrice Six when it realized much of the preserved evidence had not been tested. But the tests on the remaining 40 biological samples from the crime scene also cleared Joe and Tom. None of the semen, blood, or pubic hairs found on or near the body could be linked to the men. What's more, none of the crime scene DNA matched Joanne, James, Deb, or Kathy. It belonged solely to Helen Wilson and an unidentified male. A judge ordered a new trial for Joe and released him on his own authority. Joe White walked out of prison a free man on October 15, 2008, and checked into a Lincoln motel to take a bath and sleep in a real bed. Two days later, Tom Winslow walked free, and authorities quickly assembled a state and local task force to try and find the man responsible for the DNA. They set up a war room in the Beatrice Police Department, where they covered the walls with crime scene photos. They stacked up 11 volumes of police reports, five volumes of trial transcripts, and six files full of court documents. With their modern technology, the investigators tracked the rapist's DNA through state and federal databases and struck out for a match. They turned to a list of early suspects and they saw one possibility that intrigued them. His blood type matched the killers. His name was Bruce Allen Smith. Remember, Beatrice police considered Bruce a strong suspect in 1985 until a blood test eliminated him. But they'd preserved the saliva, hair, and blood samples Bruce gave back then, so a DNA comparison could be made. The lab analysts selected the root of Bruce's pubic hair to obtain the genetic markers. They matched exactly. It was his blood and semen in Helen Wilson's apartment. The blood on the wall that Deb Sheldon claimed she'd left from her head wound? It was Bruce Smith's. If anyone else was involved, Corey O'Brien, an assistant attorney general and one of the leading members of the task force, said they miraculously left no DNA behind. The team started the hunt for Bruce, and they couldn't wait to see the look on his face when they arrested him for a 23-year-old murder. They found him in an Oklahoma City cemetery. 
he had died of AIDS in 1992. The task force had aimed to reconvict the six by examining the investigation and evidence, but the discovery of Bruce Allen Smith shocked them into a different direction. Gage County attorney Randy Rittnor said they couldn't understand how six people could have just given up their liberty and not been involved, but a conversation with Bert Searcy gave their confessions a new light. Even with the DNA tests, Bert thought Joseph White and the others raped and killed Helen Wilson. He also thought Joe was guilty of three attempted rapes of elderly Beatrice women that occurred in 1983, but Joe had still been in the army, stationed at Fort Hood, Texas in 1983. The task force was stunned. How could the man who had solved the Helen Wilson case not know something so critical about the main suspect? Once the team started looking at the possibility that Bert had arrested the wrong people, the deputy's investigation began to unravel. They looked at the crime scene photos and saw that Helen's apartment exhibited every hallmark of a sex crime, not a robbery. The original police investigators had also thought it was a sexually motivated killing. At Joe's trial, two witnesses testified the six had searched the apartment for cash, but the investigators saw no signs of ransacking. And remember that $1,300 in cash sat in Helen's purse in plain sight. How had a group of criminals, living on the edge, not bothered to look in the widow's purse? In addition, investigators on the task force had never known rape to be a spectator crime. None could think of a sex assault where the rapist took women along to watch. And the more they dug, the more the new investigators doubted the convictions. They discovered the deep rift that existed between the police and sheriff's departments over Helen's murder. Remember how when Bert got his badge back, the police chief declined to develop his leads because he believed the deputy had the wrong people? The new team also learned some police investigators never bought Bert's theory of the six. But when they would voice their concerns, they were told things like, you're trying to prove these people not guilty, stay out of it. The task force also saw how investigators took this attitude of presumed guilt into the 1989 interrogations, too. The surviving tapes revealed multiple examples of leading questions posed by Bert and Beatrice Police Sergeant Sam Stevens. The two also mentioned confidential crime scene details that helped the witnesses seem even more credible. A couple of times, the suspects changed their stories or produced more accurate details after breaks in the tape. Task force members were troubled by the recording breaks and they wondered what sort of techniques Sam and Bert were using while the camera was off. Bert and Sam also showed witnesses crime scene videos and photos and drove them to Helen's apartment building to help them jog their memory. Dr. Wayne Price's role was another unorthodox and concerning practice. The sheriff's psychologist helped witnesses recover so-called repressed memories through their dreams. It is typical for forensic psychologists to observe investigations from afar to determine if a suspect is mentally competent, but it's almost unheard of for them to assume the role of a therapist for the suspect. Corey O'Brien, the assistant attorney general, called the dual roles mind-boggling and said he'd never heard of it happening before. The new investigative team also found records that showed some of the defense attorneys had a hand in recovering their clients' memories. For example, attorneys for James and Joanne gave their clients statements written by their other co-defendants. With all of these tactics, leading questions, interrogation tape breaks, a deputy therapist, 
crime scene footage, and statements from other defendants, the task force saw how Joanne Taylor, James Dean, and Deb Sheldon could have essentially told the same story on the witness stand. Task force members also talked to one other person from the original investigation, Lisa Brown, or confidential informant number one. Remember that Lisa told Bert that she and Joanne had talked at 7.30 a.m. on February 6, 1985, as they watched police gather outside Helen Wilson's apartment building. There, Joanne had bragged to her that she'd killed the old woman the night before. Lisa told the task force members essentially the same story in 2008, but this time, the authorities noticed a discrepancy in her account. The timing was wrong. Helen Wilson's brother-in-law didn't dial 911 until 9.29 a.m. on February 6th. Police cars would not have arrived until Lisa's school day was well underway. They were also interested by what Lisa could not remember in 2008. More than 20 years after giving her statement, she said Joanne didn't mention an accomplice, whereas in the past, she'd maintained that Joanne had implicated Joseph White. The investigators asked Brown to take a polygraph test, but she refused. She said no, even when they sent Bert with the request. They'd hoped that he might have some influence with his former confidential informant who'd founded his investigation, but she refused him to. When task force members interviewed the suspects in the Beatrice Six, Joanne and James admitted that they'd lied in 1989 to cut deals with the state. Both gave polygraphs to show the task force that they were telling the truth this time. Only Deb Sheldon stood behind her trial testimony. She remained convinced that the Six had killed her great-aunt. On November 14, 2008, Attorney General John Bruning called a meeting of the task force. He listened to reports about the original investigation and about the man identified by DNA. He asked, Is there anybody here who has any doubts that this guy is the sole killer? There were no doubts. That afternoon, John called a news conference to announce that DNA tests had identified Bruce Allen Smith as the lone rapist and killer of Helen Wilson. The same tests, paired with a new investigation, exonerated the six people who'd served a combined 70 years in prison for the crime. John placed the blame on Richard Smith and, to a lesser degree, investigators. He said this, quote, I'm disappointed that 20 years ago, in zeal to make a community feel safe again, to solve an unthinkable crime, the former county attorney and some members of law enforcement bullied six people into admitting to crimes they didn't commit. Ernie Chambers, a Nebraska state senator from Omaha who authored the DNA testing law that led to the exonerations, could think of no finer moment in his public life. He said this, quote, In this case, justice was wounded. She had a lacerated face. The blindfold had tipped akimbo, and she was able to look upon the countenances of those who had assaulted, who had abused her. She shook her head and said, Can this thing ever be made right? Well, now, justice is probably dancing. <laughs>